2: Hello. Hello. Welcome, everyone, to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. I'm Ben, a member of the editorial team here at the IAI. And I'm Ricky, editorial production lead here at the IAI. Okay, Ricky, today we've got a gem of a debate the key to consciousness. This features famed cognitive scientist Donald Hoffman, neuroscientist Hannah Critchlow, and philosopher of mind Sam Coleman. It took place at our recent How the Light Gets In festival at Kenwood House last summer. Tell us a bit about the debate. Well, I think we all kind of
3: grow up with the idea that consciousness is produced by the brain, Mm -hmm. that something's going on in the brain which gives rise to consciousness. But recently, and actually throughout the history of philosophy, this idea has been questioned... And people like Donald Hoffman and Sam Coleman, they argue that we have no clear story about how the brain creates consciousness and how physical matter kind of organizes itself so it becomes conscious at some Mm. point. And they argue that consciousness might be more fundamental than that. Idealists argue that consciousness is fundamental. Panpsychists argue that all matter is conscious or has some kind of grain of consciousness in it as you'll see in this debate, some neuroscientists like Hannah Critch though disagree with all of that. They think it's nonsense and they think consciousness does emerge from the brain. So this was quite a fiery
2: debate and they really get into it. It sure was and plenty to look forward to. But before we do get into it, remember that if you did enjoy today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.
3: Now let's hand over to the host of this debate, Joanna Cavenna.
4: Thank Thanks very much. Welcome to the debate. The relationship between the individual human subject and the world was once the central focus of Western philosophy. Modern neuroscience has instead tended to assume that the world is purely material and physical, and the problem of consciousness is a question of how to generate thought from matter. Yet we are no closer to solving the deep puzzle of consciousness, and many argue that the American philosopher Thomas Nagel is right when he maintains that the question of consciousness cannot be detached from subject and object. Is the notion that the world is purely material a fundamental mistake? Would we be more likely to unlock the mysteries of consciousness by once again adopting the framework of the subject and object? Or will slow, piecemeal advances in neuroscience and analytic philosophy eventually yield the answers that we've been searching for? We have a very distinguished panel here. We have two of them physically and materially here and then Donald Hoffman is present in a virtual sense too. Um, So I'll begin by introducing Sam Coleman, who is a philosopher at the University of Hertfordshire in England. He works on topics in the philosophy of mind and is fascinated by the hard problem of consciousness. I also have Donald Hoffman on the screen is a cognitive psychologist and groundbreaking anti-realist theorist who argues that space-time is merely a virtual reality headset. And his most recent book, The Case Against Reality, was described by The Times as thoughtful, stretching and brilliant. And he was named as one of the ten leading communicator scientists in the UK by the Science Council. I think that's you, Hannah. That's me. Yeah, that's your bio. So yes, we've skipped. But Hannah, it has been named as one of the ten leading communicators in science um, in the UK. And Hannah is also an internationally acclaimed neuroscientist with a background in neuropsychiatry. She's at the University of Cambridge, and she's the author of The Science of Fate, Joined Up Thinking, and a book about consciousness, all of which are available in the bookshop after the debate. So the format for the debate is that in a moment, I'll turn to each of our discussants with a three-minute question. Um, They'll get a time to then answer and set out their ideas and then we'll turn to a general debate among the panel and then we'll have a Q&A towards the end. So the opening question for three minutes that I'll first pose to Sam Coleman is, is it a fundamental mistake to think that the world and consciousness are purely material? Sam, thank you. Thanks,
5: Joanna. Um, I don't think it's a mistake at all, but I do think that we don't understand the material very well. I think that physics and science really only tell us so much I think at the moment in trying to explain consciousness scientifically, we're a bit like people trying to recreate a beautiful, colorful oil painting like the Mona Lisa using uh, pencil and paper. We just don't have the right resources. Um, So neuroscience deals in action potentials, right? Action potentials are what our uh, senses, our nose, ears, eyes produce when they do their thing and convert light or sound into signals that are ready to be processed and turned into sensations in different parts of the brain. Um, by the way, sensation or feeling something, that's really all I mean by consciousness, right? You've got it. Uh, the chair you're sitting on doesn't have it, presumably. A rock doesn't have it. Many animals have got it. Probably leeches don't have it. That's all I really mean by consciousness. but. Or, uh, so, so, folks, think about the difference between uh, smelling coffee, tasting. Uh something else, tasting lemon, um, seeing a sunset, smelling a rose, there's just no way that different frequencies of of, um, electrochemical activity in the brain, which is really all that goes on, could explain those differences. It's as if I had uh, a a factory with the same machinery in it, and by plonking it down in different places, it suddenly, just by virtue of that, produced radically, inexplicably different things like marshmallows over here, tanks over there. The, 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 sensory, the, the neuronal apparatus of your different sensory areas in your brain is made of much the same machinery. It's just no way that uh, the fact that they're in different places makes the difference between tasting peach, seeing a sunset, um, smelling a rose. What's the answer? We could get rid of consciousness altogether, which is what I think a neuroscience-based approach ultimately does, or it, it downgrades it so much that it's pretty much like getting rid of it, like ordering Pepsi and being given Coke, but like actually worse than that. Like The neuroscience-based account of consciousness is just not the real thing. Or we could uh, do what Donald recommends and make consciousness into everything that exists, but then I just don't know how we know that we aren't alone in the universe, how we know there's anyone else to talk to. We might just be an empty mind in a big empty universe. My own view is something else, right? I think philosophy can kind of supplement science to give us that extra something that matter needs to produce a conscious mind out of a brain, Um, to give us a more colorful, if you like, enriched picture of the matter to explain how you get consciousness in a material world. What's the extra something else? Well, uh, different options, Maybe, maybe matter itself has a conscious aspect. Or maybe it has something that is closely related to but less than consciousness. But when you put it together in the right way, it gives us consciousness. I think something like that anyway is gonna be the way to understand consciousness in the material universe.
4: Thanks very much, Sam. That's great. I'll now pose the same question to Donald Hoffman um, for three minutes. Donald, is it a fundamental mistake to think that the world and consciousness are purely material? Thank you.
1: So by material, I think of objects in space and time. And physicists such as David Gross and Nima Arkani-Hamed are now telling us that space-time is doomed. By that, they mean space-time is not fundamental. And they're not just throwing up their hands and giving up. Uh, the physicists have now found structures beyond space-time, like the positive Grassmannian, the hedron And there. so this this is all new, that's only been in the last 10 years that they've, for example, had the hedron But the idea that space and time and objects like um, bosons, leptons and quarks, particles and so forth, are fundamental is now no longer the received opinion. Um, there's something deeper like the hedron and beyond that, something called uh, decorated permutations. And so, so the idea of reductionism is also doomed, according to physicists like Neymar, Connie, Hamed. The idea that as we go to smaller and smaller scales in space and time, we find more and more fundamental laws and more and more fundamental entities. That's also dead. So so I'm not a panpsychist in the sense that I don't want to try to put consciousness in, t- in the elementary particles because the, the physicists themselves tell us that space-time and the so-called elementary particles are doomed. We have to go entirely outside of space-time and and trying to put consciousness inside of particles or behind particles. We have have to have a much deeper framework. Now, evolution by natural selection also agrees. This is work that I've done with some of my colleagues. It also agrees that um, our perceptions of space and time are not an insight into the nature of reality. They're, they're merely an uh, an interface, an artifact of our, of our um, perceptual sensory systems. There's a technical question. What is the probability that evolution would shape sensory systems to see any aspect of the structure of reality as it is? And it turns out the probability is precisely zero that any sensory system has ever been shaped to see any aspect of the structure of objective reality. So evolution and the physicists agree. Space-time is doomed. And, and reductionism is doomed. And so we have to look for a theory of consciousness outside of it. And, and I would agree with, with Sam that uh, solipsism is not the answer either. We, we needed a theory of consciousness that's not solipsistic.
4: Thanks very much, Donald. And I'll turn to Hannah, finally, for an answer to the question of, is it a fundamental mistake to think that the world and consciousness are purely material? And maybe to respond to what you've heard already, too. Thank you.
0: So I think consciousness is... Um a funny word in some ways Um, and I want to talk about something that is possibly more tangible but relates to consciousness. So if we think of morality, for example, it's a very complex behaviour that relates to us as individuals and how we integrate ourselves within the outer world. So when we study morality as neuroscientists, what we can see is that there's particular regions, particular circuits within the brain that give rise to our moral behaviour and that our genes, the DNA that we're given from our mum and our dad, impinge and underpin our moral code as an individual. But we can also see that there's quite a lot of different effects from the environment around us that can affect how we morally behave with each other. So, for example, there's moral contagion. If I'm in a group of people, and these people have different moral codes, different moral values to me, then without me being consciously aware of it, without me realizing, I will naturally start to veer my moral code and transgress or increase my moral (laughs) code more towards theirs. And there's something really interesting that happens within our brains as our moral codes, as our moral values get shifted. There's different changes within the striatum, which is a brain region that's involved in reward and motivation, which means that once you've devalued your moral code and you're transgressing, then actually your brain gets primed towards further transgression and to receive more reward from further transgression. Um, So this is a really complex aspect of our consciousness, a very complex behavioural phenotype of morality. But as neuroscientists start to understand it a little bit more, it's also posing philosophical questions such as, should we be all taking moral enhancement agents? So agents that would help us to um, increase our moral values and increase our ability to have altruism and compassion towards other people and possibly elevate our consciousness. So I want to start the discussion with consciousness by actually reducing it to a really complex behavior of morality. Thank you very much,
4: Hannah, that's great. So we'll look a bit more in our first section of the debate on this question, really, we've heard that this is a kind of debate about how consciousness relates to or is material reality. And there's obviously a huge difference in our panel and to obviously define what we mean by these terms across disciplines as well. And I mean, Donald, I wanted to go to you first as the author of a book called The Case Against Reality. Just could you give us a little more as you're already doing just to expand from that a bit about what is the case against reality? Is that just physicalist reality? and where does consciousness fit in? And also just to ask you, I mean, as Hannah was talking about um, the proven correlations between brain activity and conscious experiences. I mean, you've acknowledged that too in your work. So could you just explain to us how that fits with your argument too?
1: Yes. And I've actually done some research myself on the neural correlates of conscious experience. So fMRI study of how an uh, area MT, for example, in the uh, visual system is correlated with our experience of motion perception, and and I think that work is is wonderful. There are now dozens and dozens of neural correlates of consciousness, but but the notion is of neural correlates. When we say that they give rise to conscious experiences, that's that's more than we know. We know that they're correlated, but but the idea that they give rise is now saying we have some theory about how exactly that activity in MT gives rise to our conscious experience of emotion and and, and that, that we don't have there. There are no theories right now that can, um, you know, all all the theories that are on the table. So, um, integrated information theory, um, orchestrated collapse of microtubules theories, um, global workspace theories. If you ask the authors of these theories, and I have in person uh, many times, can you give me a specific conscious experience, uh, say integrated information theory, what is the um, specific pattern of integrated information that must be the taste of chocolate and could not be the smell of a rose? Or what's the integrated information, or, or, or say the neural um, collapse of microtubules that must be um, you know, a headache and could not be uh, the smell of a rose? And they can't give a single one. So, so the, no scientific theory, uh, materialist theory of consciousness can yet explain even one specific case. So it, it's, it's, they're batting zero there's no specific conscious experience that can be explained by these approaches. So, so my attitude is that, um, you know, if we don't have theories that are physicalists that can explain this stuff, then we we need to go in in a new direction. And the, the work I would just say on on evolution, just to, to get to the first part of your question, basically the, the key idea there is that evolution by natural selection is governed by fitness payoffs. And the fitness payoffs guide the the evolution of our sensory systems and so it's a simple technical question do the fitness payoff uh, functions uh, that guide evolution do they have information about the structure of objective reality and so it's a clean technical question doesn't matter whether whether you believe evolutionary theory or not you just look at the mathematics and, and the answer is quite clear the probability is zero that any fitness payoff function has any information about any structure of objective reality it's just that simple so Since the payoff functions don't have that information, they couldn't possibly shape us to see the truth. So that leads to the idea that um, our perceptions are more like a a virtual reality. Space and time and physical objects are, um, evolution shaped us with perceptions that guide adaptive behavior, full stop. They didn't need to show us the truth and they didn't show us the truth. They just guide adaptive behavior
4: thank you donald that's great hannah can i turn to you then in terms of what donald's saying and you've written a book on consciousness so firstly this question of how you're defining consciousness and i was also really interested in donald saying he's worked on these neural correlates and his question is um do they really give rise to consciousness and whether you could also look at that too that that question of the the particular phraseology as well.
0: So if we think of the idea of consciousness as our ability to form um, an individual, unique sense of reality that's based on our experiences, but also the genes that have been given to us from our mum and dad, which also then includes Donald's discussion on evolution, Um, and also his idea on the, the importance of the microtubules as well. So... Basically, within each of our brains, we have this wonderful neural circuitry that connects up 86 billion nerve cells um, into this circuit board of around 100 trillion connections. As we learn things from our environment, as we take in information from the outside world um, and we solidify them within our circuit board, what happens is that there's a new connection that forms from one nerve cell to another nerve cell. So that's something as we learn in our environment, this is what we see in the brain as we're learning things. As we um, consolidate that learnt thing into a memory, that becomes a stable connection within the mind. And so it can become a fast route of information transfer across that very complex, intricate circuit board. And each of us have a very individual cartography, a very individual circuit board within our mind based on our experiences, and also the genes that we we're given from our mum and dad. And that's what creates our very individual sense of reality, our very individual perception of the world. So there's some lovely research that's come out of Chris Frith and Uta Frith's um, labs at University College London where they've basically taken different individuals and asked them about their sense of reality about the world. And because we all take shortcuts in information processing, so we each, each of us use about 20% of our daily energy quota in order to send those electric signals whizzing across our very individual circuit board within our mind to create our sense of reality. Um, But we each take little shortcuts because our brain is so busy creating this up-to-date sense of reality that it has to use our previous experiences in order to make assumptions. And so what they found in the lab is that when you bring together different people... Um, and ask them about their sense of reality and ask them to discuss freely discuss their sense of reality, then they're much more likely to get towards a more accurate representation of reality because they're balancing out any bias, um, any kind of um, errors that are coming up in their individual sense of uh, perception of the world. So really what's important is our collective consciousness, not the individual um, consciousness because we're each individually deeply flawed because of the energy metabolism within our brain.
4: Thank you. That's really interesting. And this sense as well of the individuals within these wider terms, you know, that there are many, many consciousnesses. I think we'll talk about that later as well, because I know Donald has a theory that also um, relates to that. But so, Sam, I'm going to move us into our second theme, I think, which is because you'd mentioned already that you had... Major questions about the neuroscientific view of the world. And so the second theme within this is that would it be, would we be more likely to unlock these secrets of consciousness if we saw the self and the world as fundamentally separate? And I wonder. That would then suggest that we accept, would it, in a kind of Cartesian sense, that they're of different substances, and we go back to dualism. And is it, could you explain a bit about what you see as working in that question, and maybe explain a bit about dualism to the audience if they, you know, don't already know about it, and whether you then think that could be a solution?
5: Sure. So, thanks. So, so dualism is the idea that. Uh, Mind and body are radically different kinds of thing, right? So your 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 body includes your brain and that's purely physical or biological as understood by biology and neuroscience. And then you've got the mind, consciousness, sensations, emotions, your thoughts floating in some kind of non-physical bubble, somehow attached to your brain. Now that's a bit mysterious because attachment is a kind of a physical locational. So Descartes thought that your soul or your mind attached to your brain at the pineal gland. That's kind of weird because that's got a specific location, but he doesn't think minds have got a specific location because they're not physical. So that's kind of a weird view. But he's driven to it for pretty good reasons, and the reasons are we can't understand consciousness, it seems, in physical terms. I just want to make this very, very simple. I don't think it's about viewpoints of view. I don't think it's about sense of reality because animals have got consciousness. There was a bill just passed about animal sentience in, um, in Parliament, and it's about whether we should give certain rights to conscious animals. Conscious there just means can feel pleasure or pain. It's that simple. That's what it takes to be conscious. That's not having a point of view on the world or a sense of reality. It's really a very simple thing, but it's very hard to explain in scientific terms. In neuroscientific terms, like I said, it, the brain is much of a muchness as regards, it's made of neurons, it deals in, in um, electrochemical signals. If all of our conscious experience was of one kind, maybe that would make sense, but it's so very different. We don't know what it's like to be a bat, echolocating its way through the world. We don't have any idea what it's like to be a shark detecting um, electricity at, from five miles away, those are utterly different kinds of sense. We know lots about their brains, we have no clue as to what those experiences are like. So I I kind of tend to agree with Donald about the shortfall of neuroscience there. So I can see why Descartes driven to dualism. But the other option, the one I'm recommending is add a bit more to the matter. We might be able to explain it. Um,
4: Can I just ask you one more sort of philosophical clarification clarification. question as well? Because we heard in the beginning about subject object, this sort of idea too. And I mean, I was thinking about I know Donald's worked with Joseph Bogan and, and his idea that consciousness is subjectivity and so trying to you know, looking for consciousness is like looking for the wind and this sort of, but this idea of, I mean, can uh, subjective consciousness make an objective science of itself, if you see what I mean? So can the subject really distinguish itself from the object in this question of consciousness or are you arguing that in itself is quite hard taxonomically?
5: Yeah, it's such a difficult question. It's like a the, <laughs> yeah. no, It's, it's just like a wait. massive
4: question in two minutes. <laughs> I'm sorry. But if you could just explain what is this? I mean, is this again a, just a dualistic thing? I'm the subject, I'm here. The object is the world, it's over there. Is that kind of what we're understanding from those terms. Well,
5: Nagel's, I mean, this does go back to like having a kind of personal point of view on the world. So Nagel's thought is that consciousness is a personal, private thing. Each one of us has our own. If you look around all the heads in this room and just think that inside each one is a conscious mind having its own thoughts, feelings and experiences, it's absolutely mind boggling idea. But that's the truth of the matter. And Nagel has this idea that if you try to go into a scientific explanation of that, you're moving to a third person or public or objective explanation of something that's private, first personal and subjective. You're bound to leave behind the very thing you're trying to explain. So that's his, his idea that there's a tension between the subject and the object. The objective is public, right? But our conscious experiences are not public. You don't feel what I feel, and I don't feel what you feel and so on. Unless you think there's telepathy, but that's a whole other debate. Um, so that's that's his idea, if that, if that yeah, helps. Thank you, that's yeah. really
4: helpful. Um, Donald, I wanted to bring you in. And I wonder, because we're hearing about this distinction between um, you know the material world and the self, and y- I think you've maybe collapsed this already or said that it just doesn't work. So I just wanted to ask you to clarify, is the world still out there for you? Is there some undifferentiated stuff out there? And it's just that you don't believe that we can then create this absolute theory or are you saying really that the only reality is the world of the individual's perceptions
1: okay so i'm definitely not a solipsist so i'm not saying that all that exists is me and my perceptions Um, i'm saying that there is um an ontology in which consciousness is fundamental not just my consciousness the uh, the consciousness of sam and hannah and everybody else um, they're all there as, as well and there's no reason why we cannot use the tools of science to create theories about uh, uh, you know, that are mathematically rigorous uh, about consciousness, so we can we can formulate scientific theories that are mathematically rigorous that are not that are not physicalist. I, mean, I, I view myself as as being a naturalist in the sense that as a scientist, when my best science tells me that space time is not fundamental and bosons, leptons, and quarks are not fundamental, then I say, okay, that's what the best science says; those are not fundamental. Let's move on. So objects that are made out of particles are not fundamental either. So I don't want to ground my theory of consciousness in neurons or other physical objects that physicists tell me are are not fundamental. There is no reason to do that. And the physicists have given us a clue. The the deepest structure they found beyond space-time is something called decorated permutations. So they they give us a clean target. If you have a theory of consciousness and you want something mathematically precise that can start with consciousness and give us space-time, as, as a consequence of of consciousness, then give me decorated permutations. And so that's what my team is is doing. We have a mathematical model of consciousness that we show can project down to decorated permutations. And from that we can actually create space-time. So, so the idea is to start with a mathematical model of consciousness, qua consciousness, not a solipsistic model and, and not a panpsychist model because the panpsychist is assuming that particles in space-time are fundamental. So we're starting entirely outside of space-time in, in deference to the what the physicists are telling us to do. And, and so it's not a dualist model at all. It's, it's, it's a monist model in which consciousness is fundamental and space-time emerges merely as a data structure that certain conscious agents inter- use to interact with other conscious agents. It's one of thousands or millions of different data structures that agents could use to simplify their interactions. And in that data structure, you will find things like neural correlates of consciousness in the brain and so forth. But that's like finding, for example, right now, uh, you know, if I look, I'm looking at you uh, via Zoom and I'm seeing like trees and, and uh, chairs and, and people's faces, um, I could find um, pixel correlates of of consciousness. You know, faces move in different ways than, 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 than trees, for example. So I could come up with a pixel correlate of consciousness that, that picked out all the heads in the room and said, well, those are the conscious entities. Well, that doesn't mean that the pixels are conscious. That just means that that particular aspect of my 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 um, interface gives me some insight into the consciousness, but it doesn't mean that the pixels created consciousness. And, and I'll just close by saying, in the same way, of course, I love neuroscience. I, I do neuroscience, but to think that the neural activity creates consciousness is the same thing as thinking that the pixels create consciousness the consciousness that I see.
4: Thank you, Donald. Well, uh, Hannah, would you like to come in on this? That, that final statement that Donald made, maybe just to respond.
0: Well, I'd kind of quite like to go back to um, the more recent legislation on animal, the kind of the whole kind of definition of sentient conscious animals and talking about the feel- way that they can perceive pleasure or pain. If we go back and we think about, there's some individuals, there's not many of them living on this planet, but there's some individuals that have had a genetic mutation, so they actually can't feel pain. Right, so they literally can't perceive pain that they function in every other way um, on this planet. Are they conscious? Because according to this definition, no, they are no longer conscious. But of course course they are. But there's something that's quite key that underpins this. Um, So unfortunately, because they don't perceive pain, because they don't feel it, they are less likely to form those neural connections within their mind so that they respond to different environmental triggers in a way that they protect themselves in future occurrences when there's a threat or there's a danger there. And this is really what I think underpins consciousness is our ability to learn and it's thanks to these microtubule dynamics and this synaptic plasticity. Um, there's something else that I think we can learn from science on consciousness and that's by looking at different altered conscious states. So some people think that if you take psychedelics, LSD for example, it enhances your conscious level. Um, and you can see when you're looking in the brain of somebody who's on um, small doses of um, LSD or other um, psychedelics, that what happens to their brain is that it l- removes any layers of assumptions that have been made from the outside world. And it actually creates more of a naive, childlike brain network within that particular brain. So those, those kind of layers of assumptions and learned things about the world actually get stripped away from following that psychedelic experience. Also, meditation has been linked to enhanced consciousness. When we study the brain of a Buddhist monk, for example, that is very well trained in meditation, what we see is that they've got an enhanced level of gamma oscillations. Now, gamma oscillations are the electrical oscillations that zip across the connectome of our mind at the highest speed of electrical oscillations that are possible within the the human brain. Um, And it's that high speed Speed of electricity that allows the brain to integrate different pieces of information across the whole connectome, so that you're literally able to access all of the information that's occur- that's there within your individual brain. There's something else that, if I've, I've got time, just to quickly mention about consciousness is that actually, you know, we're discovering more and more about how. We are not just our moral values can be contagiously transmitted between us as individual conscious beings, but also our emotions can be contagiously transferred. So, if for example your neighbor is happy, it actually increases the chance that you will be happy as well by 36%. And there's similar figures for whether your um, sibling lives or your best friend lives within one kilometer or three kilometers of you. Then again, and they're they're happy, it will increase the chance that you'll be happy as well. Emotionally transferring different states amongst us um, as individuals to create almost a mass consciousness. And I don't think it's really possibly that surprising that as a species we are being driven to develop new technologies that allow us to transmit our individual conscious state more effectively amongst ourselves so for example we're now able to travel across oceans and across land masses to share our perspectives and different things that we've learned across the world we've created social media so that we can communicate in real time with each other despite huge differences so that we can share our perspectives and there's some people that think that we're undergoing a massive evolutionary transition away from the individuality of our past towards more of a collective consciousness which I can think can only be a good thing for our species.
4: That's great, and thank you, and you've drawn us perfectly into our last section of the debate, so we'll go to that, which is this question really that you're already evoking, this idea then that, and in philosophical terms, it's a question about monism, so the opposite of dualism in a way. A question then, if we've decided that this division of the world into matter versus something immaterial hasn't entirely worked for us, which may may be the view of some of our panel, then do we go for something called monism, which is the idea that the world is made of one sort of thing? Could this help? I'm going to turn to you, Sam, just to explain, I mean, for a start, what what is monism? Um, You work on Rossellian monism particularly. Maybe that's something you could also um, explain. And in a way, how does it help the debate on consciousness? How could it present a solution?
5: Good questions. I mean, I mentioned dualism before. I mean, the major problem about dualism is if the mind is non-physical and literally doesn't exist in, in, doesn't have a spatial location, doesn't have mass, anything like that, how on earth does it help to push your body around? It's just like a very basic, called the interaction problem. So that tends to make people think that there's only one kind of stuff, that the the mind and body are made of the same thing, otherwise they couldn't interact. And then we tend to think these days that it's physical stuff, right? But as I've been explaining, I don't think that that is, the, the physical, the purely phys, at least matter as we currently understand it, is enough to explain consciousness and sensation. By the way, I didn't Im- mean to imply that only a thing that experienced pain or pleasure was conscious. The point is that it feels something. It could be emotion. So those people who lack the sensations of pain and pleasure, presumably they also have emotional feelings. They have other kinds of bodily sensations. They, they will have conscious states. Otherwise, they would be kind of like what we call zombies in in philosophy. Um, Russellian monism, right. This is, this is named after Bertrand Russell. And um, Russell had this view of physics where he thought that physics kind of gives you the skeleton of the world. Or if you want to talk about particles, like bracketing for a moment, Donald's. Possibly correct view that there aren't really such things as particles. That, uh, say, with an electron, physics will tell you what an electron does, but not what it is. A bit like if all I knew about you was where you went to work, what time that you went to the gym, that you gave to charity, but I didn't really know who you were, as, you know, what. what what you were made of, what your character was like. So Russell's idea is that physics only tells us how electrons interact with other things. It Doesn't tell us what really an electron is made of. And it sort of leaves a gap in the middle of our understanding of physical entities, could be particles. And then you just stick something in there. You say, well, maybe there are hidden properties to electrons that are relevant to the production of consciousness. If you think that's all we're made of is just, Particles or physical stuff in the end. And that's the idea of Rossellian monism. So it's a kind of enhanced or enriched monism. Instead of a physicalist monism that's been being referred to, it's a more colourful monism, if you like, which is what I was trying to advocate for in my initial pitch, if that makes sense.
4: Yes, and thank you. That's great. That's really helpful. I'm going to bring Donald in on this. I mean, firstly, I I guess I was thinking of Sam's remarks about maybe matter has consciousness. And I mean, Donald, you've distinguished your approach from a Uh panpsychist approach in the past. And I think you've said that that kind of approach, that panpsychist approach, hasn't been cashed out into a mathematical theory. So maybe to distinguish what you're doing from that quickly and also I know you've advanced a theory that reality may be a network of conscious agents. And as Hannah was talking, I was thinking about your theory as well. So if you could just explain to us a little more about that as well.
1: Yes, uh, I think that one idea here that might be helpful is what I call the stipulation problem of consciousness. So most theories today, 99% of the theories that are available on consciousness today, stipulate space, time and particles or physical objects like neurons as being existent. And they, so they stipulate that, and then they stipulate certain properties, for example, integrated information or orchestrated collapse of microtubules or global workspace states, whatever. So then they stipulate those structures, those or those activities. And then as it turns out, since they cannot from those derive any conscious experiences, they stipulate the conscious experiences. They stipulate that this pattern of activity in v4 is color experience. They stipulate that this pattern of activity in m5 is is motion experience and so forth. So you stipulate space-time and particles, you stipulate the integrated information or whatever that, and then you stipulate the conscious experiences. So it's stipulation all over the place and no explanation whatsoever. Same thing with panpsychus, you stipulate the particles exist and you stipulate that there are these Uh, conscious entities that are are inside them, there's no principle why this consciousness should be behind this particular particle. It's all stipulated. So so my attitude is, if we want a clean scientific theory that's mathematically precise, um, let's stipulate, with a nod to William of Ockham, as little as possible. So what we try to do is stipulate only the conscious experiences, period, and then show how, uh, with that stipulation alone, we can then boot up space, time, and particles as a, a, one of many interfaces that uh, consciousness can use to interact with itself. And so that gets to the second part of, of the question you asked me, which is about the conscious agents. And so so again, I'm not interested in a hand wave. I want a mathematically precise theory. And so we published a, a paper called Objects of Consciousness. It's available online. Anybody can look it up, Objects of Consciousness. It's a It's a mathematically precise theory of consciousness. I don't, I'm not saying it's right. It's just the best theory we have right now, and this and what we're doing is using that mathematics to actually um, show how we can boot up, for example, the decorated permutations that the physicists have found beyond space-time. And so we're actually going from a mathematical model of consciousness through decorated permutations to boot up space-time and the particles that are inside space-time and try to predict um, so-called scattering amplitudes. So we're going for a monism where we start with consciousness, not a hand wave but a mathematical theory, and without hand wave, try to actually produce scattering amplitudes, like two gluons in, four gluons out at the Large Hadron Collider. That's the goal, is is that kind of rigor. Uh, you know, the stipulation problem of consciousness is something that we can't ignore. Everything is stipulated right now. Let's not stipulate everything. Let's let's stipulate as little as possible.
4: Thanks very much, Donald. Yeah. So Hannah, I want to turn to you this, a bit on this because I know from reading your writing, you have an idea about social cohesion. And I think you've you've said that this kind of improves our understanding and minimizes error. And I was thinking, would that then be, it's almost a kind of opposite conceptually of what Donald is saying, because he would propose um, something that is non-physicalist, but presumably in line with your argument, would that become in some sense non-material, or would your view of a kind of social cohesion, does that always have at its basis this understanding that that consciousness is rooted in the brain and in material reality?
0: Well, it doesn't have to be necessarily the brain. So I was saying earlier that there's 11 million bytes of data that enters our senses at any time, but we're only consciously aware of around 40 to 50 bytes per second. So there's a lot of the other bits of information that are stored within our bodies within the nerve cells in our bodies and you might you might you know sometimes experience a heart flicker or a gut feeling about something which sends a signal to your brain which affects your decision making and there's some lovely studies looking at how we can more intuitively start to tap into accessing that embodied cognition so as it's called so there's some lovely work by Sarah Garfinkel she's a professor at University College London again um, and she's looking at different exercises so that we can start to access that information within our heart and within our our guts a little bit more effectively. So simple things like taking time to listen to our heartbeat and exercising our ability to listen to our heartbeat and how that can make us more consciously aware of all that information that's in the outside world that we might not otherwise be consciously aware of, and all that information that other people are giving off, the cues that they're giving off. And there's a really lovely study that was actually quite a small-scale study by John Coates. Now he used to be um, a trader on the stock fl- on the um, Wall Street on the stock floor, and he made quite a lot of money. Um, and he just, he was looking around and thinking, why is it that I'm so successful? So he decided to take his money and he retrained in neuroscience, which is how I met him. And what he found in an admittedly quite a small-scale study was that those traders who were better able to detect their heartbeat, so they had a better ability to tap into that embodied cognition, the information from other people on the floor around them, they were actually more likely to make profits uh, during a period of economic downturn that he measured in the, ne- in the next year. And actually, their heartbeat detection ability predicted how much profit they made. So there's something about being able to tap into and access that information from the outside world, that collective consciousness that we might not otherwise be consciously aware of, that gives us a competitive advantage, even in terms of economics and fiscal advantage
4: that's great thank you very much i mean the last we'll have to thank you so much for coming thank you you so much for (laughs) to the speakers thank you
2: That sure was an interesting discussion there, some fascinating thoughts from all our panellists. But that's all for this week, so thanks for listening to our episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice, and visit iii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers.